Revelation 2, 8 through 10. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Thank you. You guys can be seated. I don't know if you noticed, but she texted me and said to wear jeans, shorts today, so we went matching. We thought it would help. Good afternoon. Um, Thank you. Let me pray for us real quick. Heavenly Father, as we prayed when we were preparing for this service, God, I pray that you would go to work, that the Holy Spirit would be present and active, that you would, uh, through your word and your truth, Help us to see you as beautiful and good. Help us to align our hearts to who you are and the promises that you've made over us. I pray that your word would go to work and that you would move me aside. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Kelly and I recently celebrated our 10-year anniversary, which is pretty dope. Yep, 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 exactly. 10 years since she's been married to the man of her dreams. That's what she says. Uh, I was thinking about it, and I don't think, I think only two people were at our wedding that are here now, which would be Cammy, and I realized that Mark was there because he did worship. We walked out to a Thrice song, which is pretty hardcore. It sounds more hardcore than it actually was, but I still, it was pretty rad. He slayed. I'm just kidding. Uh, at, our, at our wedding, uh, during the ceremony, the person who was doing the thing worded something kind of weird for us. So, like, normally it's, you know, for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. And this dude threw a, a curveball. He, he said something like, Oscar, repeat after me. Kelly, all that I have is yours. And like, it just sounded so weird to me. So I started laughing and I looked over at Kelly and I'm like, all I've got is a couple of t-shirts. I'm like, sure, all that I have is yours. And so like, we're both busting up laughing over it. Here's the thing though, in that moment, for most of us, when we get married, especially if you're getting married in like Southern California or anywhere in the United States, really, when you hear those words for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, I think most of us have a pretty bullish outlook on our lives. Like we may think in that moment, sure, there'll be some hard times. There'll be some tight financial seasons. But for the most part, we think we're on the up and up. Like things are going to go really well for us when we make those vows during our covenant. But uh, that's not the case for everybody. Some people on their wedding days make their vows and they're thinking they have a very bearish outlook because of their circumstances. I mean, just think about like interracial couples in the 1900s. For them, saying yes to each other meant a life of hardship, of social pressure. Or think about the Christians getting married in the underground churches in like the Middle East or in China. For them, they're going hand in hand for the rest of their lives, having an uphill battle 
in some parts of the world, to have an outright Christian marriage is subjecting yourself to persecution and even possibly death. Not everybody has a bullish outlook when they say, I do. But nonetheless, covenant love is meant to be for better or worse and for richer and poorer. And I can say, like, in the case of my wife and I, we've had a very prosperous life. I have more than a couple of t-shirts now. Um, But with that said, if God took it all away and we had nothing, I couldn't imagine living that kind of life with anybody else but my wife by my side. This letter to Smyrna speaks of that kind of love, the kind of love that says for richer or poorer. In many ways, it's a continuation of the letter that we read last week to the church of Ephesus, because in that letter, we learned of the church that everything was going really well, but they lost that first love, which meant everything was going well, but they were kind of on shaking ground, because if things turned for the worse, who knows the kind of disposition that those people would have. But that's not the case with Smyrna. They have that first love. They love Jesus. And so ultimately, Smyrna is experiencing the opposite of what the first church was. They are experiencing a poor life. They're experiencing a kind of social pressure over their love for Jesus, their Savior. And soon after this letter, they're going to experience an outright persecution They face condemnation, not only from the culture, but even what we're going to see from their own people, from the religious leaders in Israel. They were even facing condemnation to them. So ultimately, this letter, what we're about to read is a love letter from a husband, Jesus, to his bride, preparing her for sickness and being poor. He's preparing her for the tough days. He is speaking love and grace and hopefulness into her life, kind of saying, stick with me. Let's do this together. Now, to understand the kind of condemnation that the early church was facing, or I should say, I think it's important for us to take a survey, a quick historical survey, to understand the kind of condemnation that the early church faced. Because it will help us identify the kind of reasons why we should face persecution ourselves, or at least a social pressure. Larry Hurtado wrote a book. He's a historian, a Christian. He wrote a book called The Story of the Gods. And in it, he gives four reasons why the early church was shunned, looked down upon, condemned, and eventually persecuted. The four, real quickly, is this. One, the early church refused false idolatry. They had a radical commitment to Jesus and Jesus alone. The early church refused to identify itself or align itself with anybody or any power besides Jesus. To them, they were the bride of Christ, and any loyalty outside of that was paramount to infidelity. 
And remember, when Rome, the political power, came in, basically Rome would tell the people who they conquered, hey, listen, you can worship your God as long as you play our political game, as long as you hail to Caesar, as long as you worship Caesar, as long as you give us our political authority, our financial authority, then we will allow you to worship God, your own gods, whoever that may be. And the Christians stood apart in a Greco-Roman world as not wanting to play that game. Because again, they, had, they were radically committed to Jesus. The church was also, second, radically diverse. It was the first real religion that was not marked by either social economic status or heritage. When you walked into the Christian church, it was radically diverse, rich and poor, Middle Eastern, African, European. And that might be like common sense to us today, but please recognize this is 2,000 years ago. This was radically different and weird. It made people feel uncomfortable how diverse the early church was. And the last two things is that the early church was uh, radically committed to their sacred text, the Bible. That was, that was weird then, and in many ways, it's weird now. And lastly, the early Christian church was persecuted, condemned, ridiculed, mocked for their Christian ethic. Their views on sexuality in the Greco-Roman world 2,000 years ago was not popular, even then to believe in a lifelong monogamous marriage between one man and one woman was not a popular thing to think in the Greco-Roman world. On top of that, their views and commitment to justice, their treatment of women. Women back then were considered a second-class citizen, but if you walked into the church, they were leaders, deacons. Their treatment of children. Back then, a child was worthless until they, until they were old enough to contribute to society, they were considered worthless. But to the early church, they valued them and their treatment of the poor. The Christian church did not treat the poor as deserving whatever economic punishment that they were getting. Rather, they sacrificed their own funds to lift them up. They fought for justice. The early church was ridiculed, not for their radical, obnoxious culture wars, but for their love, their love for their own and the love for the world around them. And it was that kind of love that both repelled people away from Christianity and drew many more to them. See, the early church stood out like a sore thumb. What we're gonna look at this morning is we're gonna explore that kind of pressure that they were facing the kind of pressure that we face today. And I want to use that word pressure because it seems a bit short-sighted to compare what we experience today to the kind of persecution that other, other churches are facing. One, 2,000 years ago, right? Like in Smyrna, one of their leaders a couple hundred years after, not quite actually, not long after this letter is written, was burned at the stake. Like I have a better chance of making the NBA than being burned at the stake here in Orange County. And Danny of Matt have seen me play basketball. I have zero chances of making the NBA. Or you think about churches in China or like in Afghanistan right now where you have to wake up on a Sunday morning and worry that you're going to be murdered for going to church and trying to worship Jesus. So let's call what we face, because we do face something, a type of social pressure. And we're going to look at 
what God's purpose behind what we face is, and then the power to overcome it. Let's go ahead and read Revelation 2, verse 9 one more time. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Threefold, notice that it mentions tribulation, poverty, and slander. So we're going to go look at that right now. First off, poverty. We live in Orange County. We're not exactly an impoverished state. However, we are a church plant. And as it pertains to churches in Orange County, uh, I think it's fair to say we're on the, on the cusp of impoverished. I mean, if you don't think so, just go look at our van. Like, <laughs> we're not exactly Saddleback Church, you know what I mean? Um, here's the thing, though. I was actually talking to somebody who, came, who, who, who uh, him and his family attended here recently, and I hadn't seen them in a while, and I was just like, oh, hey, how are you guys doing? He's like, oh, we're doing good. We actually just started to go to church again about a year ago. And I'm like, oh, dude, that's great. I'm like really happy to hear that. And he's like, yeah, we started going to XYZ church down the street. It's a big box church. And he says, you know, it's just easier for us. They have more amenities. And that sounded a bit weird to me, like amenities. I've never heard somebody describe church as having amenities. But honestly, I didn't care because at the end of the day, like I don't, I don't care where our friends go. What I care is that you are committed to a local church and being transformed by the gospel on a daily basis. If that means King's Cross Church, praise God, we love having you. If that means somewhere else, praise God, we're going to talk poorly behind your back. No, I'm just kidding. So he goes on to tell me that they've been there for about a year. And honestly, the rest of this kind of breaks my heart. He says, you know, we, we really... It's just easy. We check our kids in. We sit in the back with a cup of coffee. It's nice and air-conditioned. When we're done, we grab the kids and we bounce. And uh, he goes on. I'm like, that, that's cool, man. Like, I was just, again, I was just trying to be happy for him. But then he goes on to confess that he hasn't really been growing in the word, that they miss their friends, they miss being known and loved, that his wife is struggling spiritually. And that part, that part's the part that breaks my heart. Because here's the thing, amenities aren't a bad thing. Like having a nice established church is not a bad thing. Praise God for those churches. We hope one day to be that kind of church. But it's almost like all throughout the scriptures, there's like this warning sign behind comfort, behind middle-class comfort, whether it's church comfort or just the middle-class Orange County comfort. There's almost like, the, 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 the Bible's almost like screaming like this surgeon general warning may cause spiritual lethargy. So yeah, like church planning is hard, but I, I can say, at least for my family, we are rich spiritually being here. It's been hard for us. Like I can count on one hand how many times Kelly and I show up on a Sunday and neither of us have nothing to do. We just get to sit and be blessed by the word. I can count on one hand because it's either zero or one. Like it just doesn't happen for us. But we are rich and I know that you are too. Like we've seen people come to a saving faith, grow in the word, marriages strengthen, lifelong relationships and friendships come together here over the gospel. We are spiritually rich because of what God is doing, and he does not need amenities to do those things. And if you're here this afternoon, and you're like, man, that sounds really cool, but I have not been able to experience that kind of family thing myself, 
my encouragement to you is to stick with us. Hang in there. Like, and if you're here and you have experienced that, but you're looking around and you're thinking, hey, that person I haven't had lunch with, invite them out to lunch. Here's the thing. It's like this. Speaking of amenities and just kind of showing up and leaving, it's almost like imagine having a Thanksgiving dinner with family. We're like, I don't know what kind of family environment that you guys have, but just imagine that you're a part of the kind of family, the Hallmark family that shows up early in the morning and they hang out all day together. They cook the meal together. They set the plate together. They're hanging out playing board games. Like nobody's in a rush. They're there to fellowship. They have the Thanksgiving. And you've got that one uncle that shows up right when the food's done being cooked. He grabs his plate to go and he leaves because he wants to go home and watch the football game on his big screen TV. Is he a part of the family? Well, kind of, but is he a part of the family? Is he experiencing the kind of love and community and relationship that is a blessing to be a part of a family like that? No, he's not. He's avoiding it for comfort. The next thing it talks about is tribulation, what we're gonna call a type of social pressure. And again, like I was saying earlier before, we don't face a type of persecution, but it's very clear that for us as Christians in the modern day era with uh, living here in Orange County, that there certainly is a kind of unacceptance. And my prime example would be this. I was at a work, uh, a work event in Seattle and I had a break between meetings. So I walked into this coffee shop that had like really good coffee reviews, praise God, amen. And uh, they happened to also be broadcasting a radio show there. They were like interviewing some local bands. And so I'm like, oh, this will be cool. Cool people, you know, people watching. I sit down. There's like an art show going on over here. The radio program is about to start over here. I've got my coffee. I'm opening up my laptop and I'm sitting there working away. And this gentleman in a dress, shaved head, gets up, introduces himself and starts out by saying something like, hey, we just want to recognize that we're hosting this meeting on what was formerly uh, Native American land, and we want to honor their sacrifice through forced colonization by having a moment of silence. So at first, I'm like, I can respect that. Like, that sounds awesome, that they're just recognizing where they're at, and, and so I'm with you. Like, that sounds cool. We have our moment of silence. And then he comes back, and he goes, we want to encourage everybody or tell everyone that this is an inclusive meeting. Everyone here is, you're like, all are welcome here, no matter your gender, sexual orientation, spiritual practices, and everyone's like shaking their head. And then he says, and I'm not exaggerating, he says, so any of you with archaic, bigoted, religious views can grab your stuff and leave, we will wait. And I don't know if you guys know this, but I have like a giant King's Cross sticker on the back of my laptop. So I'm like, did this dude see me? Like, what? And it was awkward. The people started cheering. They were like clapping for him. And two things stood out to me in that moment. First off, the contradiction between saying that they're inclusive and then in the very next sentence, excluding anybody that he sees as archaic or religiously bigoted, which essentially excludes like 60% of the world's population, according to him, probably. 
But the second thing that I thought was interesting is that he had just got done trying to make up for colonizing, and then he did the very thing that the colonizers did, because it was the colonizers that showed up and said something to the effect of, these Native Americans are ancient, archaic, and religious, and we need to modernize them into the, into, you know, the European Western views so that they can grow up. And that's exactly what he was trying to do to somebody like me in that moment. So the point I'm making is that we live in a time where maybe we're not fully persecuted, but there's definitely an unwelcomed social pressure having Christian views, having uh, an ethics that come from a strong perspective on God's word. Just one other example, like I was thinking about this. If you were to, if you were to get a job interview, let's say 10 or 15 years ago when I started in the workforce, and if somebody were to ask you, what do you do on your spare time? And if your answer was something like, actually, my wife and I are a part of this church plant. She volunteers in children's ministry. I'm on the very sweaty setup and teardown team. And during the week, like we spend most of our times with our church family, the person interviewing you 15 years ago might have thought to themselves, even if they're not religious, even if they weren't a Christian, most likely they would have concluded, hey, you know what? This person has a strong moral compass has strong ethics, they're committed to their community, that's a plus. But let's face it, if that was your answer today, in certain places, not all places, but in certain places, they would have to wonder whether you were going to be a nuisance, a challenge, a problem in their place of employment. What's worse, though, is this. Notice that the verse says this. In the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. See, the early church was not just ridiculed and condemned by the Greco-Roman world. They were also getting it from their own family members. Notice it says those who say they are Jews or are not are a synagogue of Satan. Essentially this. Like I said earlier, the Greco, when the Romans took over an area, they wanted your political allegiance. And the Christians were not having that. They weren't playing that game. And mind you, the Romans viewed Christianity as another sect of Judaism. And in Israel at that time, the religious leaders were playing the game. They were politically in bed with the Roman rulers. They basically made an agreement with them. We will give you our political allegiance as long as you give us our religious freedom. But the Christians were not having that. They weren't playing nicely, if you will, with the Romans. And so even the religious leaders in Israel were coming after the Christians. And that's why he says, you say that they, are, they say that they are Jews, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus is basically saying, you say that you are with me, but you're actually doing the complete opposite of me. You see, the followers of Jesus in the early church were on a totally different path. They were not interested in political power. That's because Jesus promised that his kingdom would come not through power or privilege, but through the meek, through the poor, through the vagabonds, through the ones in need. His way of ruling his kingdom is so otherly and so different that the early church simply did not fit in their boxes. And I think what God has for us today in these words is to show us that it's not much different today because his kingdom is no different than it, is, than it was 2,000 years ago. 
His kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven, not through political power, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. And God gives us this example. Jesus says, listen, my kingdom's gonna come through sacrifice and love, primarily through the sacrifice that I make on the cross to redeem people and reconcile them to me. And then through the sacrifice and love, my people are going to give towards those, to the communities in which they live in. That is the way that God desires for his kingdom to come. So I want you to see like Christianity is so utterly different according to these verses that the left and the right wouldn't know what to do with us. Christianity is not meant to be a spiritual source of entertainment, a political voting block, or an amenity to life. I was talking to Kelly about the fact that just sort of there's the recognition that we are raising our kids to believe and worship God in such a way that they will never feel like they're a part of such a wild two-party system, that they're always going to feel in exile for their entire lives if they follow Jesus authentically. And in some ways, it's like, why would you raise kids to like not fit in? But I'm reminded of John 6. In John 6, Jesus gets done preaching, and the people do not like it. They were following him for power. And he gets done preaching on his kingdom, and he starts alluding to this great sacrifice that he's going to make. And it says that many of his followers left him. And then Jesus turns to Peter and is like, are you going to go too? And Peter says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Why would I raise my kids this way? Because the praise of men is cheap and impossible to keep. But Jesus has the words of eternal life. He is the Holy One of God. Next, we're going to look at the purpose, the purpose behind why we experience this kind of pressure. See, in this love letter to his bride, Jesus tells them that there is purpose to their suffering. Look at Revelation 2, verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. I know it's hotter than usual in here, so I just want to let you guys know we've got about 45 minutes left in this sermon. We've got about 10 minutes left. We can do this. The amenities, guys, they don't matter. This was a good t one to preach on on a hot day like this. First thing I want you guys to recognize is that he mentions the devil. The devil is about to throw them into prison. One, things are going to get worse, but what he wants to remind us is that all of this stuff that we are struggling through is not just flesh and blood, that there's something spiritual going on here. Specifically, he says that we are being spiritually tested or spiritually refined. God is, through all of our suffering, through all of our struggles, through the Christians who experience persecution and to those of us who experience social pressure, ultimately what he wants to do is refine us and make us more like his son. He is at work in our lives and doing something. I was just telling the guys, Kelly and I got a pizza oven for our anniversary, which is like the best thing ever. 
I was on this like gnarly good uh, uh, healthy eating kick and then we got a pizza oven and like all I want to do with my life now is eat pizza. We made five the first day and then we had like leftovers. I see, I see you judging me, Trevor. I don't care. We had a breakfast pizza the next day. It's amazing. I, when I, before I left today, I'm like, babe, can you go get some dough? Like stuff to make dough, we want to make pizza, you know? Um, here's the thing though. So once you get a pizza oven, there's this entire culture, much like sourdough, where like people just gather together and try to figure out how to make the best dough possible. But it's interesting because there's not much behind dough. Like there's four ingredients. It's salt, water, uh, double zero dough, or double zero flour. And if you want to know what double zero flour is, it's flour with two zeros in it. I have no idea what it is. Uh, and yeast. But here's the thing. So four ingredients. But the spectrum between a really good pizza dough and a really bad pizza dough is huge. And the difference between with just those four ingredients comes down to three things, measurement, temperature, and timing. That's it. But the spectrum between what you do with your measurement, your temperature, and timing has a very different kind of result. Here's the point that I'm making. In our lives, we might not know why we're going through what we're going through. It might not make sense to us why we're experiencing what we're experiencing, but in God's hands, he is perfectly shaping you. He knows the right measurement, the right temperature, and the right timing for everything that you're going through. And so he is shaping and shepherding you to be more like his son, to be more like who you were meant to be, who he created you to be. And what he's asking you to do is to trust him, to be faithful. Look at his promise. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You are being perfected, and you can trust that you're being perfected. I heard it said that when God reduces our comfort, he is increasing our glory. But here's the thing. I recognize while saying that, that there are certain times in our lives where we've been going through things and we might be like, all right, but like, this seems like a lot. This seems like too much. Really? So I'm supposed to praise God because this is happening in my life and it's making me more like him. That can be a little bit of a hard pill to swallow. And so I want to close with this. And really it's with a question. My question to you is this. Why do you love Jesus? Why do you love Jesus? Is it because he's beautiful? Or is it because he's useful? Would you love him? Would you follow him if he wasn't useful? If he didn't make your life more comfortable? See, here's where the power to withstand pressure comes from. Your love for Jesus will ignite, will increase the more you realize his love for you. Many years ago, there was a king of England who met a like nobody American woman, fell in love and wanted to marry her. But the royal family, which is basically like Europe's version of the Kardashians, I've come to find out, the royal family, along with the, uh, the Church of England, got together and they said, no, she's not allowed to be queen. And so this guy 
over love for her, abdicated the throne. He set aside his crown. And when he was asked why, he said, I couldn't picture doing life without this woman by my side. He loved her that much that he gave it all away. The crown, he was the king of all of Great Britain. Like he had all the power and all the praise from the people and he gave it all away for this woman, for this nobody. Could you imagine being loved like that? Could you imagine being loved that much? Because here's the thing. Jesus set aside his crown. He gave up his power and his privilege, which was to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He gave it all up and lived an impoverished life, dealt with sickness, was stripped naked, mocked, whipped, and hung on a cross. Why? For his bride, for you and for me for love. You are loved that much and that much more. And the more that we set our eyes on the ways in which God loves us, the more empowered we will be to overcome the kind of pressures that this life has for us and to worship him in a unique way that is so set apart from this world that people won't know what to do with us. And so set your eyes on the love that God has had for you because when you do that, you will be able to say to him, in sickness and in health, for richer or poorer, all that I have is yours, God, because you gave it all up for me. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.